0: So I was looking for some stock photos on worship to put up here today while we got started. And I was intrigued by my perceptions of what worship is and how some of those perceptions were confirmed in the way people perceive worship. In other words, you type in worship in the Google images and then you get these, you get these snapshots of what other people think worship is, or what characterizes or captures worship. And so if you type worship into Google, you're going to get like these silhouettes of hands, you know, raised up against light, or maybe a woman clutching a locket. She's not actually clutching a locket, you know, but she's kind of doing this, or she's in a wheat field, you know, in some country dress and boots with her her arms out like this. Or, Or maybe it's... A man with a guitar is usually surrounded by smoke. He's got one hand on the neck of his guitar and the other one's up like this, you know. Or maybe a crowd that's enveloped in a blue light and everybody's looking really emotionally connected, you know. These are some of the images that come to our mind when we think about worship. Now you may be looking at this slide and you're going gardening. But as I studied this passage and unpacked how the Pharisees came and how Jesus was trying to connect, re- redirect their understanding of worship, this picture actually fits really well. Last week, as I said, we're prone to drift. We need to have our minds regularly adjusted, recorrected, right? That's why we come, to bring ourselves in submission, to remind ourselves who's king, what life is really about, and tend to line ourselves to adjust ourselves up under God and what he thinks and feels. And adjusting ourselves is part of what we do as believers. We need to have our minds renewed on essential Christian doctrines on a regular basis. And that is true with this topic of worship. And I think these this picture of people gardening together does a really good job of capturing the essence of true worship as Christ calls us to it. Especially what we'll see in the teaching today. Gardening together, people, it's daily. It's dependent. We do our job and then we wait for God to do His. We're dependent on Him. It's weed pulling. It's working. It's dirt. It's sweat. It's relationships. It's kindness, reaching across. It's the thought of providing something for somebody else. Are you with me? It's mindful. I'm considering what the produce will be of my investment. It's sharing. It's active. It's mundane. This is worship. So we're on our series, Come Let Us Worship, and we're looking At what Jesus has to say about true worship and capturing that in the gospel. So last week we walked through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. This week we're in Luke, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 7, and Luke and then John will be the following weeks. In this account, Jesus exposes the Pharisees and the scribes for their religious appearances, but their distant hearts. He actually says, your mouths bring forth worship, but your hearts are distant from me. It's in Mark's gospel that we learn to avoid vain worship. So my goal for us today is to renew ourselves to true worship, which encompasses church every day. hour of our lives it does what we do here is a culmination of a week of worship it culminates here together corporately i think i rewrote this teaching today i don't know three or four times just prayerfully considering there's There's truths embedded in here, church, that I think we really, really need to hear today. But I think the best way is just to walk through the passage, and I'm going to teach us as we go, and then I think we're going to learn some things from what the Pharisees did, as as by learning by antithesis. In other words, we're learning by opposites. Let's jump in. Mark chapter 7 starting in verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with their hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, notice verse 3 starts this parenthetical thought where Mark is um, recognizing who his audience is, and so he's going to educate a little bit, and he says... For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So again, we're going to remember that in his gospel, Mark is primarily writing to Gentile Believers, He's writing to Gentiles. And so he explains what the scribes and the Pharisees and all the Jewish people are doing in this, these traditions that they, these many traditions that they observe. And he's talking about how these Pharisees and then these scribes come down from Jerusalem and they're checking up on what Jesus is doing. And they bring with them their ideas of what religiosity looks like or what a relationship with God actually looks like. And they discover that some of the traditions that have been developed by their previous leadership, the religious leaders, were not being followed. And so again, Mark offers this parenthetical thought in verses 3 and 4 by way of explanation. And he's making the point... That hand washing is a common practice. It's something that not just the leaders did, but all the Jews did. And before they eat, when they'd come back from the marketplace, he's helping them to understand that for them this is about cleanliness. But what he's really telling is what he's really telling his his readers is: but it's not the issue. Hand cleanliness is not what this is about. He lets them know that it's not just hand-washing, but there's a lot of other traditions. In other words, the Pharisees could have camped on couch-washing, they could have camped on pot-washing, or dish-scrubbing, but they landed on hand-washing. And then he says, "...and there are many other traditions that they observe." Again, the Bible here is making the point that what is going on in this account is not specifically about the act of hand-washing. But it's the heart that generates the hand-washing that's in question here. If you look down a little bit further into verse 13, Jesus just gets done talking to them about a specific issue where they have a law That helps them to override their ability to actually care for their parents. And Jesus brings up this specific example. And he says, this is just something that you do. This is exactly the thing I'm talking about. But it's not even just this law about your parents. And it's not just about hand washing. Then he says this, and many such things you do. He's talking about that these activities, this thing you do with your parents and the hand-washing and the pot-washing and the, and the couch-washing, all this stuff is coming from a heart that is crooked and broken and needs redemption. This is what we talked about last week. This stuff that you're doing flows out of a heart that is broken and sick. And you don't get good fruit from a bad root. You don't. One of the things that always surprised me when I was younger was people coming to Jesus seemingly with these kind of uh, innocuous questions. Hey, why don't your disciples wash their hands? And they get immediately both barrels. But Jesus knows you don't get good fruit from a bad root. And your heart is sick. And that's the problem we need to deal with. So the Bible here is capturing how worship has gone askew. There's been a whole bunch of religious scaffolding, spiritually looking behavior that has been erected around what it means to have a relationship with God. And Christ is busy dismantling this. And so to capture this, the passage uses a variation of the passage traditions of men, It's started to be repeated even as I read in these first several verses, but as we read through the rest of the, the section of Scripture here, you'll see that this tradition of men is repeated. It's actually repeated a total of six times. Three of the times are spoken by Jesus. This idea of these traditions of men, and they're in contrast with the commandments of God. So if you look at, A little bit lower again in chapter 7, verse 8. Jesus says this, You leave the commandment of God for the tradition of men. This is what Jesus is saying. Because your heart is sin-sick, you gravitate towards rules that do something for you. And you ignore the rules of God. And so the point is, That there was a standard of religious behavior that was being utilized as the requirement or standard for righteousness or for righteous living. You with me? So these Pharisees and the scribes that have come down for Jerusalem have erected their own understanding of righteousness and what it means to live righteously and they believe they're actually doing pretty good according to their own standard. And they're judging others for not doing so. If you think about this... I've had this happen before. As if, you're, if you're parents, you've had this happen before. Um, if you've worked with a group of people and you realize this is a really good group. And then somebody comes in and starts criticizing. And you're just like... Well, you really don't know who these people are. Can you imagine... Jesus sitting here with these group of disciples, far from perfect, he knows that. But he's shepherding their hearts, and he knows they're desperate, they understand redemptive, their redemptive need for God, they're pursuing God, he understands what's going in, and then here's these Pharisees coming, and they're, like, they don't, they're not washing their hands. Jesus is like, really? That's what we're going to focus on? Hand-washing? And it wasn't just that it was a dumb rule, but it was that their dumb rule was competing with the commandments of God. In other words, the religious community of that time was so focused on the rules that they had made up in order to follow God that they were ignoring the commandments of God himself. As long as they were checking their boxes doing that, doing this, got that one done, they could ignore God's commandments. Church, have you ever been there? You're checking the boxes, you're doing the deal, and you forget about God. And so the scribes and the Pharisees come to see Jesus and his disciples, and they make an accusation that's cloaked in inquiry. They pretend they got a question, but they don't. Verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribe asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, in order to get the context of why this is such an absurd question, we got to back up into chapter 6 a little bit. So look back in chapter, Mark chapter 6, verses 53 through 56 this is the context of what's happening and so when they crossed over it's talking about crossing over the sea of galilee so they were on the east side of galilee they cross over to the west side and they're up north into the little town called gennesaret and when they crossed over they came to the land at gennesaret and they moored to the shore and when the people got out of the boat, now these people are the disciples, it's Jesus, it's the twelve, and then it's also other disciples. So we know there was more than just twelve disciples, there was a lot of disciples. And when the people get out of the boat, the people, that's the people in Gennesaret, immediately recognize him and ran about the whole region and begin to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. This is like instant energy. There's a buzz, a hubbub. It's him. Who? This Jesus, it's all over the region. And wherever he came, in villages or in cities or in countryside, this is a lot of activity. They laid the sick in the marketplace, and they implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, were healed they were made well hello it's a lot of activity and anybody that even touched his clothes this isn't this modern day stuff where people go to some healing seminar in a wheelchair and they leave in one it's not that this is the real thing people are barely reaching out and touching and being healed they were lame one morning now they're not so Jesus is performing many miracles. Townfuls, literally townfuls of people are observing and responding. There's a buzz of activity around Jesus and his disciples. This is not just rumors. These are first-hand accounts of people. I, my legs were leprous this morning. Now they're not. Come and see. There's first-hand accounts of healings. Miraculous feedings. These divine transportations from one side of the lake to the other without a boat. How do he do that? And Jesus and his disciples have just arrived and people are scurrying about trying to get to him. Now this was the draw for the scribes to come out from Jerusalem. This is a 90 mile journey on foot. Okay, this isn't hop in the Hyundai and get down there in a, you know an hour and a half. This is days' journey. This is significant amounts of investment. And the Pharisees come over. This is no small task for no small event. God is at work all around these religious leaders. Literally. The kingdom of God was being established on earth by Jesus in their presence. And the thing they're concerned about is whether or not the disciples are washing their hands. You see it? We've got our standard of righteousness and you're not meeting it. And they're so focused on that, they're missing everything else. I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but I remember when I was, went to Bible college and I, I was just like that. I'd gotten a few verses in my theological pocket and everybody that didn't line up was subject to my judgment. It's pretty sad. But I also realized that wasn't just the weakness of a 19-year-old. As I'm unpacking this passage and looking at the Pharisees, I'm realizing my heart bends that direction even now. So when the Pharisees pose the question, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? They get Jesus' immediate response in verse 6. My paraphrase, Jesus says this Isaiah nailed it when he called you people hypocrites. And so to make his response clear, Jesus repeats the same thing five times in five different ways. So here we go, verse 6. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written. This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to their tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And then he gives them this specific example that we were talking about. For Moses it said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. That's the law. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is corban, that is given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making the, making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And so this repetition thought, if you've seen them in the verse, Jesus is talking to them, he's repeating himself, he's saying the same thing in five different ways because they need to hear it. They're not hearing it the first time. And so he says in verse 6, You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. In verse 7, in vain you worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. In verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. And then in verse 13, making void the word of God by your tradition. Now, in order for us to understand what this offense is that the scribes and the Pharisees have committed, it's really helpful to define two terms that Jesus uses in this first phrase in verse 6. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And again, he's quoting from Isaiah, but he's giving them an indictment. You're talking a lot about worship. But you have no idea who I am. That's a problem. So this word lips is actually the word chelios Now, guys, I'm not telling you this like to impress you like I know Greek. I don't. But sometimes it's really helpful to understand these words in the context of it because it lends tremendous amounts of insight. So yesterday, I'm studying back through. Father, how do I say this? What does your church need to hear? What's the difference? What's the difference between lips that honor and a heart that's far from me? And so I clicked on the word with my little study program, and it says that we tend to think of lips as our mouth, you know, these little two pink things around our pie hole, and that's, that, that kind of speak words. And so when it says, you honor me with your lips, that we think about speech, but the word actually means, that's partly true, but it actually means the pouring place or the spout. Or the shoreline, the edge of a place, or margin. It was really helpful for me. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is addressing not just empty speech, but he is saying that you talk on the outskirts of your lives. You're talking from the edges. You talk from your margin. This isn't from your heart. You're speaking from the outer perimeter of who you are. This isn't about what's going on in here. It's about what's ever left over for me. These people, we could say it this way in a paraphrase. These people honor me with the edges of their life, with their margin, the leftovers, the extremities. Well, church, that's not honor. The word heart is the word cardia, right? We get cardio from that cardiology, it means thoughts, minds, emotions, feelings. Modern day, we might use words to capture the heart like values, treasures, things we hold dear, our inner thoughts, our character, our identity, heart. I think when we hear heart, we often think, oh, I feel, I feel nice about that. You know, you picture some guy skipping, probably not me. You probably don't picture me skipping. But we think something fluffy, it's out there. But this is the essence of who we are. It's the center. It's the core of who we are. So paraphrasing, we could say the same verse this way. These people honor me with the edges of their lives, while the essence of who they are, the things they hold dear, that, ple- that place from which all their daily activity flows is someplace else very far from me. And this was the fatal flaw of the Pharisees and the scribes. They were using standards of righteousness that they could reach on their own. It was the outer perimeter of their lives where the only Savior necessary was themselves. They could manage that. They were checking their own boxes, and because they could check their own boxes and reach their own pedals, they were blinded by the fact that they were missing the commandments of God. Church, I, I, I labored over this passage. as so undone by how prone I am to, to doing that. Are you with me? to checking my boxes matter of fact this is this is the default undoing of my parenting as long as my kids are checking the boxes hey if i'm not careful Church, this is why we have so many kids leaving the Christian faith. You know why? Because we got a bunch of parents that as long as the kids are checking the boxes, we can leave them alone. By the antithesis, by the opposite of what's going on in the Pharisees' lives, church, we ought to be steered back, to be drawn back to what true worship is and not repeating the drift of the Pharisees and the scribes. Here's what they did. Here's how they, di- Here's how they drifted. We see it clearly in the passage. The first thing is, they missed the redemptive activity of God. Miracles, healings, miraculous transferences from one place to another. They're missing it. God was all around them, but for the sake of their traditions, they couldn't see it, nor did they participate in what he was doing. And because of that, they missed their own desperate need from rescue from the sin that dwelt within them. Because they were checking their own boxes and they had it together, they didn't need redemption. Therefore, they didn't need Christ As a result for that, they misdiagnosed the hearts of others. They misdiagnosed the disciples. Do you see it? They had their standards. Everybody gets judged through my standards. I don't need to ask them any questions. They're obviously not Christians. They're obviously not God followers. Look at them. By whose standard? They're broken ones. So they missed the redemptive activity of God. They missed their own desperate need for rescue. They misdiagnosed the heart of others. And they were so focused on their traditions that they missed the daily living out of honoring God, of following His commandments. So in Matthew, Matthew records Jesus saying this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. These seeds were all these little tiny ones. If you've ever seen cumin or mustard seeds, they're little tiny ones. And Jesus is saying, essentially, you're sitting there, you're separating these seeds out, and then you're focused on your little tiny itty-bitty seeds, and you're neglecting the big things. Justice, and mercy, and kindness. Church, I'm going to argue, I've told you the story before, my first car, a 1969 Ford Falcon, it was so out of alignment, you let go of the steering wheel, within 100 yards you were in the ditch, right? Church, I'm going to argue, this is us. If we don't keep our soul in check, if we don't pay attention to what's going on in the inside, we're tempted to judge ourselves by our checked boxes. And the minute we let go of the wheel, we're in the same lane as the Pharisees. When I first went to Bible college out of high school, there were a lot of these kinds of external hand-washing kind of standards. They weren't necessarily in the Bible, but for years they had been logically... People didn't just make this stuff up. They were logically rooted in the Bible, but they were man-standards meant to help people obey God. But it was very easy for these standards to become the standard by which righteousness was determined... Traditions developed by men by which we judge the hearts of other men and ourselves. By the way, we typically like the rules that we're doing good at, don't we? Or at least feel strongly about, because today's culture, as long as you feel strongly something about it, it's, it's just about as good as truth. Don't wear t-shirts with secular rock band logos. Don't wear stone, stonewashed denim. That was a thing. That's all I had. Don't play games with face cards. Don't have long hair for the boys or short hair for the girls. Don't wear makeup for the girls. Don't wear necklaces for the boys. Don't throw a football on Sunday. Frisbee, yes. Football, no. That, that was a real thing. Don't hold hands with a girl unless you're engaged. Don't go to the movies. Don't listen to secular music. Don't miss morning devotions. Like with the Pharisees' the scribes and their hand-washing, there's nothing, nothing necessarily wrong with any of these standards in and of themselves, especially if they flow out of a heart that is genuinely seeking to please God. I don't know how many uh, CD burning parties I had. All my secular music out to a bonfire. I I honestly, I don't know. All I'm just telling you is I think God was honored by that. Here's a young guy trying to figure it out, willing to do whatever. You know, a couple hundred dollars in CDs. I remember crying watching U2 go up in smoke. The problem is elevating these rules, these traditions, to assess our righteousness or somebody else's righteousness. See, that's the problem. And forgetting and neglecting our own heart. And these man standards have distorting results. See, if you did any of these things that I just listed, you couldn't possibly know the grace of Jesus. If you're participating in that, it's obvious you don't know the grace of Jesus. But if you didn't do any of these things, you didn't need the grace of Jesus. Now, we might find it easy to hold this kind of 80s-type Christian traditionalism or even, you know, hand-washing, pot-washing, cow-washing kind of at arm's length. Oh, that's stupid. That's foolish. But how about some of the traditions that we might hold now that are in competition with God's commandments? Church, hear me for a minute. I don't think we realize how easy it is for us to become Pharisees and miss true worship. To become content with checking of the boxes at the margin of our lives while ignoring this daily worship and daily honoring lived out in our relationships and in our integrity, in our character. Right? This is this is true worship. It's daily. It's dependent. It's weed pulling. It's dirt, sweat, and relationships and kindness and mindful and it's sharing. What am I doing? How is this producing for others? It's mundane. It's worship. But see if we're not careful, we'll get stuck up with our own series of filters. Do you watch certain movies? Do you homeschool? Do you spank your children? Do you have a conflict minimal marriage? Are you reducing your debt snowball? Do you use contraceptives? Are you listening to secular music? Do you have a high view of scripture? How many Bible studies do you attend? Does your church church teach solid doctrine? Is your book filled out for small group? You got all those lines filled in? Do you listen to or reference that one particular pastor that none of us are really fond of? Do you have insightful things to say at men's Bible study? See, if we hold to these man-made standards as standards of righteousness, we will not only write off people that we shouldn't, We will inevitably assess ourselves by our honoring lips while our hearts are distant from God. It's so easily to be lulled to apathy in our corporate worship. Because of our surface obedience and checking boxes. But true worship keeps us from vain worship. That's what we learn from Mark's gospel and Jesus' words. We keep ourselves, church, from drifting into vain worship by true worship. And that starts with an accurate picture of who God is and what he's doing. And church, that is an every morning, every day reorienting of our lives, true? A realization that I need to be rescued from what's inside me, and that's every day. Left to myself, I will be hopelessly about myself all day. Even in my religious sacrificial obedience, it's, it can be all about me. True? I need to be rescued from myself. Like Jesus' picture of the tax collector, I am the most hopeless sinner I know apart from Christ. If we don't go there, we don't go to worship, church. And this attitude, this spirit of who Christ is, who God is, and who I am in relationship to him, it's the essence of worship. And so we keep ourselves from vain worship by true worship. Is that not what the Pharisees failed to do? We read a couple of definitions of worship last week and they were really good. But from Mark's gospel and Isaiah's account, we learn what vain worship is and by antithesis what true worship is. True worship has four essential components and I really want us to think about this. And the four components are really clearly seen in Isaiah chapter 6. It's the verse we read when we opened today. So I highlighted some of the words for you. This is in your handout. Some of these ways that we see true worshiping happening when Isaiah comes into the presence of the Lord. Notice in verse one, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And then down in verse 5, he says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah's response to this is in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. And then his rescue comes in verse 7, this... Seraphim flies to him and touching his, touches his mouth and he declares Isaiah clean. Behold, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And the only appropriate response to who God is and who I am and the fact that he's cleansed me from my sin and all my shame and taken away all of my loss, the only rep- appropriate response is the end of verse 8 and Isaiah says, here I am, send me. I'm going. And we know from history that he went. So church, as we think about true worship, as we come here to church, we come because we have been working through this all week. Learning to apply true worship, and it culminates here together, but it doesn't start and stop here. Here's the four key components I want us to consider for worship. The first one is to know God truly, to see His redemptive works, and then to respond to Him from the heart that, to that knowledge by esteeming God and valuing God and treasuring God and being satisfied with God. Part of that's from John Piper. And the second key part of Worship is, as a result of that knowledge of who God is, we see ourselves rightly before God. This unscalable chasm between who He is and who I am. His holiness and our sin stain. And we are struck with our utter need for rescue and His grace in providing it. Church, this keeps us from these list-keeping things where we judge other people. True? The third essential component is when we see God for who he is and we see ourselves for who we are and his rescuing grace to us results in a joyful expression of gratitude. And this happens both internally and externally. I am so thankful for all that you have done for me. It's what we did here tonight, by the way, Isabel. So while I'm changing my sermon, Isabel is changing the music And thank you for being open to the spirit because those were perfect prayers in song for our time together tonight. And then we daily pledge ourselves to live completely for God as a slave of his righteousness. I am your slave. I do what you say. There's you. Then there's me. You've rescued me. I belong to you. I do what you tell me to do. You say jump. And I'm, I'm in the air. And so this last part is B to respond with love rooted, gratitude driven actions of joyful submission to his values, his will, and his ways through visible acts of love and sacrifice for others. And that plays itself out every day. Church, this is the antithesis of vain worship. And it's 24-7. I know it seems silly, but I really do help. This has been helpful to me. This is what true worship is. Him, me, pledge, be. All four of those. Seeing him, seeing me, and then pledging myself, I will follow you today. And then being, living those things out. So vain worship is the outskirts, it's the margin, it's the perimeter of my life. It's God's Word trumped by external standards of men. But true worship, church, this is where we rest, this is where we need to meditate and consider and think and bring ourselves joyfully in the submission to. True worship is my treasures, my values, my identity wrapped up in honoring Him and living according to his word, and generously serving others in both relationships and my character, my integrity. Him, me. Pledge, Be, Father, as we'll see as we get closer to John, this is the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. Those who worship in spirit and in truth that we do what Your commandments say, with our whole hearts, with our spirit, with everything that we are. Seeing you and ourselves rightly, rejoicing in your rescue, pledging ourselves daily, and coming to you, living out joyfully your character traits in us. This is true worship, and you seek these kind of worshipers, and Lord, we want to be them. We want to be the kind of worshipers you seek. And so we pledge ourselves even now. We, Lord, you are so good and so kind. We will follow you with our heart and with our soul and with our bodies. For our joy and the glory of Christ. Amen. We have a prayer that we're going to go ahead and do together. This is a Puritan prayer called Journeying On. So if you would stand with me and we can pray together. Lord of the cloud and fire, I am a stranger with a stranger's indifference. My hands hold a pilgrim's staff. My march is heavenward. My eyes look for Jesus' kingdom. My heart is in your hands without reserve. You have created my heart, redeemed it, renewed it, captured it, conquered it. Keep from every opposing enemy, crush in it every rebel lust, mortify every treacherous passion, annihilate every earthborn desire. Every inch of my being resounds with your touch. I love you with my soul mind body strength might spirit affection will desire intellect understanding you are the perfection of all perfections all wisdom and insight are derived from you compared to you the sun is darkness all beauty deformity all wisdom folly the best goodness faulty You are worthy of an adoration greater than my dull heart can put forth. Invigorate my love that it may rise worthily to you. Tightly entwine itself around you and be drawn to you. Then my heart shall fully belong to you and my walk be endless praise. Amen.